Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. This episode is a recording from a public event held on January 11, 2024 at Sunrise Banks. Our Sustainable Development Goals Roundtable, Tools to Envision a Restorative Future, featured a conversation about long-term sustainable development planning featuring futurist Trista Harris of the consultancy firm Future Good. She was also joined by a panel of experts, including several of Global Minnesota's corporate members, who discussed their company strategies for restorative future planning. This is SDG Roundtable, Tools to Envision a Restorative Future. And uh, to my global citizens out there, uh, it's great to see people in person and welcome uh, to our virtual participants as well. Um, I'm honored to welcome you today. Uh, We are in, well, this group thinks of borders from a country perspective. And but what you may not know is you're right on the border of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And the space that we're in today is called the bridge. So the bridge, the two cities together. And this particular space um, is designed for exactly what we're doing today, for people to gather and to bridge uh, people and the connections thereof. This, This space gets used a lot which is absolutely fantastic. So if you do have organizations that, that need a space, please reach out because uh, we're more than happy to, to host folks. Um, with that, um, we are gathered here today to focus on the power of international collaboration, cultural exchange, and the pursuit of a better world. Pretty noble uh, as, we embark, uh, as we embark on the journey, uh, I'd like to highlight a few connections between Global Minnesota and Sunrise Banks. Because if you're not familiar, Sunrise is not just any bank. We are a legal benefit corporation and the only bank that's a legal benefit corporation in the state of Minnesota, as well as a certified B Corp, as well as what's known as a Community Development Financial Institution or a CDFI. And lastly, we are a proud member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. So what does that mean? Now, first, as a legal benefit corporation and a certified B Corp, Sunrise is committed to a higher standard of social and environmental responsibility and using business as a force for good, aligning our values and our actions to create positive impact on society and the planet. Second, as a CDFI, Sunrise actively works and provides financial services and support to underserved and economically disadvantaged communities, contributing to economic growth in the stability of our nation. And last, our membership in the Global Alliance for Banking on Values reflects our dedication to ethical and sustainable banking practices on a global scale. The Alliance today unites over 70 financial institutions in 42 countries that share a commitment to using banking to build a more just, inclusive, and sustainable future. So by being a member and collaborating with Global Minnesota, uh, it strengthens our commitment to these values. And these principles. Together, we can amplify our efforts and promote more uh, equitable, just, and sustainable world. So I want to express my deep gratitude to Global Minnesota. So uh, welcome to everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. All right, there we are. Good morning, everyone. Again, uh, we have, I think, close to 50 of you in the room today, another 90 or so folks online with us today to hear this program on sustainable development goals, our sustainable development goals roundtable, tools to envision a restorative future. And we're so glad that you all can be with us today. So my name is Phil Hansen. I have the privilege really of being the president of Global Minnesota and working with just some phenomenal people to bring 
applicable programming to our communities every single day. Um, to open our program, I want to take just a couple of minutes to share some words of appreciation, um, give you a little quick overview of Global Minnesota, because not everybody always knows what you know, we're all about, and to give, make some key introductions as we kind of start the program out today. Um, first, I want to say, again, just how truly grateful we are to Sunrise Banks um, for inviting us into this space with them, for being a great partner, uh, being one of our corporate members, and also helping us with the event content today. And as you heard from David, Sunrise is very invested in promoting a sustainable world, and we're fortunate to have them um, as a great partner. It was fun coming in this morning to an event where the entire Sunrise team, I thought, was in the room helping us get this done this morning, and they did just a wonderful job of getting things prepared. I think it advanced without me, and that's fine. So, Global Minnesota, we're one of the oldest um, and, and uh, largest, I guess, World Affairs Councils in the United States. There's 80 World Affairs Councils around the country, and we're, we're definitely in the top 10, just in terms of volume of activity and team members that we have. We've been at this for about 73 years as an organization. We really evolved from being a international student kind of welcoming committee now to a multifaceted, nonprofit, nonpartisan membership-based organization with a really broad mission to advance international understanding and engagement. We provide a gathering place for the community members and professionals to connect, discuss, create meaningful exchanges that deepen understanding and create opportunities to really build you know, lasting relationships. Just to give you a sense of scope with us, in fiscal year 23, we engaged about 15,000 participants in 450 different activities, and we covered 137 different countries across that span of time. We offer unique lineups, lineup of programming with content that covers the most relevant social, cultural, political, business-related, and international issues of our times, while at the same time welcoming um, 40 to 50 delegations for professional exchanges to the state um, every single year. So we can see some of the pictures on the screen, some of the terrific programs that we, uh, we offer and provide our community. So again, for Global Minnesota, we, um, in addition to all those programs that we provide to the community, we also provide a number of business-related programs. We offer a range of business and international programs, giving our corporate members access to influential leaders, insights into best practices, and brand exposure. We do this through a series of really globally focused experiences, including our international business roundtables, our sustainable development goals roundtables, engagement with visiting dignitaries, and connections to visiting professional exchange delegations. We offer networking experiences and global affairs events. And just this year, we added a really terrific new event that we hope you'll come and join us for again, because we're going to do this annually now, uh, the Global Business Outlook event that we held out at 3M with John Panor and with a whole team of wonderful experts that came to join us for that program. Our private sector um, plays a huge role with us. Uh, and when it comes to us kind of helping to create a more sustainable world, many of our corporate members have sustainability goals. Programs in our SDG Roundtable series are designated to encourage the exchange of global best practices with experts and business leaders from around the world. We have a lot of our corporate members that are here in the room tonight, and many of them have products and services to offer that can be helpful in advancing your company's sustainability needs and goals. So if you noticed when you came in, you may have grabbed it. There's a terrific handout that lists the companies, some of the services and products and things that they offer that might be supportive to that sustainable goals development. We please ask you to take a look at that and take that with you uh, when you leave today. We also are thankful to, uh, again, to Sunrise Bank as a corporate member and the 44 global Minnesota corporate members that are with us today that help fill this mission every day. Uh, in the room, if you're in the room and you're a corporate member of Global Minnesota, would you raise your hands? Take a look around the room. So if you'd like to learn more about becoming a corporate member or even an individual member with Global Minnesota, one of these folks with their hands up 
be happy to help you to better understand uh, what we are all about as an organization. Or you can see the fabulous corporate relations officer over here, Steve Riedel. Does anybody, how many in the room know Steve Riedel? Raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> more people know him than our corporate members. So, so see Steve and he'll help you with that. He's a wonderful, wonderful man and he'll be very helpful in that regard. We also have uh, coming up, I just want to give you one quick plug for uh, probably our biggest annual event that we do at Global Minnesota, which is our U.S. foreign policy update coming up on Wednesday, January 31st at 6 p.m. Please join us. It's a very popular, very insightful program. Gives you a good forward look into U.S. foreign policy coming up in the year ahead. I'd also like to acknowledge just a few special guests that we have in the room with us today. I know Jan Bauer is here, the counsel from the UK government. Where's Jan at? Raise your hand. Wonderful to have Jan here. I think she might be here. Uh, Britt uh, Articardi, I don't know if she joined us or not, from the uh, Consulate of Norway. Uh, Tana Moore, who is actually the chair of our Corporate Relations Committee. So um, raise your hand, Tana. She can also answer any questions you might have. I know Elaine Kumpala, the Honorary Council of Finland, was going to be joining us as well. We also want to thank our promotional sponsor, supporter, um, United Nations Association of Minnesota, and of course, the great moderators, panelists, and guests that are here to help support the program today. So thank you to everyone. It's great to be together to have this great conversation about a very important topic. We have some wonderful speakers today, and I'm going to introduce to you one of those speakers, our keynote, and then I'll turn it over to Steve to introduce our moderator for us today. So our keynote speaker is Trista Harris. Trista is a futurist who advocates for the use of futurism to address critical community challenges worldwide. Her groundbreaking work has been featured in Forbes, New York Times, The Chronicle Philanthropy, CNN, and many social sector blogs. Trista is the president of Future Good, a consultancy that helps visionaries create a better future, and has authored two books, How to Become a Nonprofit Rockstar, which is one I really need to read, and Future Good. Prior to her work at Future Good, Trista served as the president of the Minnesota Council of Foundations, a thriving grant-making community that awarded over $1.5 billion annually. She was also the executive director of the Headwaters Foundation for Justice and a program officer at the Minnesota uh, Philanthropic Partners. Krista has served as the Minnesota in the Minnesota Super Bowl host committee and the Governor's Council for Law Enforcement and Community Re Relations, which was established following the police shooting of Philando Castile. A strategic foresight expert certified at Oxford, by Oxford University, Krista holds a Master of Public Policy degree from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and a Bachelor of Arts from Howard University. So we're going to welcome Trista in just a little bit. But before we do that, I'm going to have Steve come forward, give an introduction of our moderator for the program today and get things kicked off for us. Again, huge thanks to all of you. It's great. You came out this morning, a little bit of a cool day, for, but, but for an incredibly cool topic. We're so pleased to have all of you with us and so thankful for that. Let's give each other a round of applause for being here today. Thank you, Phil. I want to say good morning, Trista. Thrilled to have you here. Um, in the run-up to this event, we have had a great conversation with Trista going. I'm really excited about this topic, about how do we think about the future more than just a handful of years into the future. Very excited about it. So as Phil said, I manage our corporate relations program for Global Minnesota. If any of you would like to know about that program, I'll be the last person to leave today. So feel free to check in with me. Would love to tell you about Global Minnesota. Um, I'm really eager to hear from Trista, but I want to make sure we introduce our moderator now before um, we go into our keynote, Bjorkvin Syverson, a name I always enjoy saying, wonderful name, um, has been a friend of Global Minnesota and a great working colleague of mine for a few years. Bjorkvin is the principal for a consultancy called Yorth Group, 
Uh, Yorth Group does uh, sustainability consulting, but we sometimes call it restorative development as well. And I've asked Jorgvin to tell you what restorative means versus sustainable, uh, because we actually put it in our, in our event title. Um, it's a pretty cool concept. Uh, Bjorgvin, we, we also chose Bjorgvin because he's very capable of thinking globally, which is what we really love at Global Minnesota, thinking about how there's ideas outside the United States that are free for us to take and use here. Um, and many of you are already thinking that way. And, and if you're not, you're going to love networking today because we brought many people here today who already think that way. So, so Bjorgvin, we're so pleased that you have agreed to be our moderator today. So before we bring Trist up, I'd just like to invite you to tell us what does restorative development mean, and then we'll hand things off to Trista. So first of all, I just want to catch on one thing you said. When you grow up outside of the U.S., you, you have to wonder when you get to the U.S., what can we possibly learn here from others? That's not what you learn if you, you know, to, that's not your conventional wisdom of America, the United States, if you grow up elsewhere. But restorative development, um, what is it? Todd, if you have equity, you have one equity, and I'm going to take it from you, and now it's my equity. Did I create new equity? Now, I took yours and I made it mine. And maybe I left you in some sort of a despair, and now you may need help from others, right? <laughs> and then somebody steals my equity, and I'm, I'm in the same. That's how economies are operated. That's how corporations are operated. That's how govern, governance works in a non-restorative or non-net zero environment. Today, we have great panelists uh, who work in this space every day. And the first of all, Trista Harris is a warrior who's been doing this for many, many years. So she has a great past, but also she sees the future. So Trista, if you're ready, let's take it away. Jorgen, thanks so much. Excited to be here with you today. Um, I bet many of you have not met a philanthropic futurist before, so I will describe how I got to this place. Uh, I, when I was running the Headwaters Foundation for Justice, I was a couple months into the job and I got a call from an investment advisor and he said, don't panic, which is a fantastic time to panic. And this was 2008. Our endowment lost between 30 to 50% of its value during that time. And we suddenly did not have dollars to give for grants for amazing organizations that were doing transformative work. That is not a great place for a foundation to be. And so uh, I ran into a book about how to use futurism to get a business advantage during times of crisis. And I was like, this is a time of crisis. Let me start to bring these tools to our grantees. And so we did. And we taught them how to shape what the future could look like. And as a result of that work in the next couple of years, they had 10 legislative wins, the most in our organization's history. They had wins on things like alternative teacher certification to diversify the state's teaching force, first in its country, Homeowners Bill of Rights to deal with the mortgage foreclosure crisis, uh, and then marriage equity in the state of Minnesota. And so it really lit a spark in me uh, to make sure that people that are uh, doing good for a living and trying to make the world a better place have access to these tools that are often used by 
uh, the business sector to understand what people want to buy in the future. Many of you probably have futurists in your team or futurists that you contract with. Uh, it's also used by the government, usually the military, to figure out who's going to hate us next. Uh, but it is often not put in the hands of people that are trying to make transformative change. And so in 2018, I started Future Good to make sure that these tools were accessible to uh, people from foundations, nonprofits, and businesses that had a social purpose. And the, the work that we do is to help visionary leaders build a better future. We do that through strategic planning using uh, a futurism lens. We also uh, have something called Future Good Studio where we teach people how to use futurism in their day-to-day -day work. So I'm going to share some of those tools with you today. So first, a little bit of context. Uh, there is a saying, it's meant to be a curse, may you live in interesting times. And we are living in a time of real rapid change and decline. It's a time of pandemic and racial reckoning, uh, school shootings, the slow collapse of democracy. We are passing the tipping point on climate change. This is a really interesting time. And we just happen to be born in this time in humanity. Uh, but I think another future is possible. The future is not some terrible thing that is coming towards us. Every single day we are making decisions that determine if we have an amazing future or if we have a really terrible future. Uh, and I believe that the tools of futurism allow you to not just predict what's coming next, but also shape what that future looks like. So predicting future trends and learning how to harness them is not magic eight ball work. I know that it, it often feels that way. It's also not something that only professional futurists can do. It's something that each of you can do in your day-to-day -day work. BetterUp Labs has said that the most important skill for leaders today are future thinking skills. These skills help you thrive and stay resilient in the face of uncertainty. And there's a lot of uncertainty right now. They did a survey of over 1,500 US workers and they found that those that were higher in future-mindedness reported 34% less anxiety, 35% less depression, they're more optimistic about the future, they're more productive, and they have greater life satisfaction. So um, these tools help you in a lot of different ways. Um, I think one of the best ways that we can practice our future thinking skills are uh, dreaming about the future impact of your work. So when you think about your sustainable development goals, what do they look like in 30 years? If you were 100% successful, if public policy aligned in all the ways that, you, that it wanted to, if funding was not an issue, what is the transformation and change that you wanna create through this work? I think the challenge for many organizations is we have a very clear picture of what we're doing next year, but we don't have a shared picture of what success looks like in the very long term. And when that picture gets really clear, um, it helps you figure out what do you do in the present to get to that future. I'm going to share a couple of the trends that I'm paying attention to in this moment, but I think the important context piece is um, there, there's a saying, the future is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. There's another today is giving you clues about tomorrow. Uh, I often host these global events called field trips to the future, where I take people to another place in the world that is living the future that we hope to live. We had a, a trip for Minnesota elected officials and funders where we went to Sweden to see the future of early childhood education. And that helped to lead to all day kindergarten in the state of Minnesota because we could see a picture of what it looked like to really invest in kids. And so I think it's important as you're thinking about trends that are out there, sometimes another community is already living the future that you'd like to see. 
So the first trend is that disruption is the norm. So this is a really unsettling time that we live in with a lot of quick change. Um, but to be clear, it is not a temporary time. So I hear a lot of people saying they can't wait until things go back to normal. They can't wait until things calm down. Um, unfortunately, we are living in a time of exponential change that's driven by technology. That change is getting uh, more intense and faster, but it is impacting every single aspect of our lives. And if that is the case, what we have to do is one, build our organizations for that disruption. Uh, the way that we can do that is have a very clear North Star of where you're going, both in your SDG goals and in the work that your company is doing overall. What does success look like in the very long-term future? Because then you can harness that disruption to help you get to that ideal future faster. It's also really important to have super clear values during this time. What that helps you do is know how you're going to show up, uh, regardless of what the, the world sort of drops at your, at your doorstep. Next is artificial intelligence uh, is making a pretty significant impact, obviously. Uh, Dr. Ray Kurzweil has predicted, uh, he's a futurist that is really great at predicting specific timeframes for technological advances. He's predicted that artificial intelligence will achieve human-like intelligence by 2029. Uh, I think with the launch of ChatGBT in 2022, we are already well past that point. This has vast impacts for society as a whole. Um, we need to quickly learn how to partner with these tools. We need to ensure that we are using them to provide us with data, but not for decision-making. Humans should make decisions. AI should not make decisions. Um, and I think a lot of people are really worried about AI replacing white-collar white uh, jobs. What I think is uh, more likely is that we will be able to use AI to reduce repetitive tasks, and we'll be able to use humans for things that only humans can do. Creativity, relationship building, innovation, those are the places where we really need human energy and power. Um, I think the other part that is really important is back in the industrial revolution, we moved from 80 hours a week to 40 hours a week of work. We had new innovations that were able to transform the way that humans interacted with work. I think with this AI and robotics revolution, we have the opportunity to move from 40 hours a week of productive work um, to 20 hours a week of productive work. And uh, I think if we're really honest about social media usage and uh, unnecessary meetings, we might already be at the point where we're at 20 hours of real productive work and the rest is sort of filler. Uh, but what we have to be able to do to make that transition is to have conversations about AI taxes and robot taxes. So as companies are benefiting from these tools, we have to make sure that some of the financial benefit is going back into society through things like universal basic income, higher wages for employees, so that as they are working those 20 hours a week of work, that people can sustain and thrive and be active members of their community. Uh, the, the last trend is climate resilient cities. So this is a 100% solar uh, powered community uh, that endured Hurricane Ian in Florida with no loss of power and minimal damage. Babcock Ranch is only 12 miles away, away from Fort Myers, which had a ton of damage. It was completely unscathed. So this neighborhood has meticulously planned streets 
that ensure that uh, the streets flood and not the homes. Uh, as you see, it's all uh, solar powered. They have systems to control uh, storm water. All of this is in addition to being built to Florida's really robust building codes. Their school was used as an emergency shelter after the hurricane because 90% of their county was without power. So how are you advocating for the cities that you operate in to be more climate resilient and to build climate resiliency uh, into the fabric of our communities? And how are you making your, your companies more climate resilient? The piece that I will leave you with is the future doesn't happen to you. You create it with the decisions that you make today. And another future, a more positive future is possible. It needs you to have long term, a long term future frame for your work and your impact. It needs you to spend time understanding the future trends that are going to influence both your work and your communities. And it needs you to believe that a more beautiful and equitable future is possible. So I want to thank you for everything that you are doing today to make tomorrow more beautiful. We're going to open it up just to a, a couple questions from the, the live audience. And my um, team likes to joke that uh, my party trick is having an idea about the future of, of everything because we're very much generalists or I've got a resource to, to send you to. So whatever you're curious about, please ask. Wow. Trista, that was an earful. <laughs> I am thinking, where do we begin? <clears throat> Who's going to do what? But um, Michael, I see the, your hand. Thank you very much. Yes. yes. Question for Chris. What a beautiful presentation. Thank you so much. Um, try to teach kids the SDGs. And one of the challenges you have with that, of course, is when you talk about sustainability with anybody, they think about climate change. Mm -hmm. But that's only five of the SDGs. So, how do you get across the, the concept of sustainability, um, you know, the, the last time I looked at the definition of sustainability, it had to do with the integration of all the goals that we have, um, like authenticity, which is, you know, taking into account everything that, every, you make a decision, every, every decision you have and take needs to be de determined after you understand the impact of that decision on all parties. That's an authentic decision. Sustainability is the same thing. How do we, how do we get across to these kids, high school kids, middle school kids, uh, this interrelationship of all these goals together? That's a that is a fantastic question, and I think that um, young people are actually most able to integrate these pieces together for for a couple of reasons. I think one of them is they have the most at stake. So they've got the longest time left on the planet. <laughs> They're very invested in uh, what is the, the future that we're creating. Um, what I have found when talking to uh, young people about future trends and these different pieces that are balancing, what's been really helpful is the Marvel Universe. So uh, the Marvel Universe has, has expanded this idea of the multiverse, where there are lots of different futures that are possible. And this idea of there is a hero and a villain, there's a lot more shades of gray. And I think that that really aligns with both the SDGs and future work, that it isn't about uh, what is the one right thing to do. It is about considering the decisions that you make and the millions of ripple effects that they have on lots of different people. And instead of thinking about one sort of 
singular ideal future, what there really is is a multiverse of ideal futures where for different communities and for different um, individuals, there's a different picture of what a successful future looks like. And our responsibility is to ensure that my ideal future doesn't ruin your ideal future. And so I think for, for young people, giving them the opportunity to play with these ideas and think about unintended impacts and unintended, both positive and negative impacts, allows them to think about the complexity of this in a way that is aligned with a lot of the media that they're they're ingesting in movies that they're watching, these concepts are already being developed and shared uh, in that sort of type of media. But how does it apply to things like the SDGs? Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. And uh, please state your name. Will you, will you tell us who you are also for the online audience? Um, my name is Mercy Tyler. I'm here. Um, on behalf of NAO Partners, which is a commercial real estate and urban planning firm. Um, thank you so much, Trista, for all of that enlightening information. Um, my question is more so revolving around youth involvement. So what I've seen in communities that I grew up in, I'm from Gary, Indiana, so very marginalized, um, middle-class town that it has now kind of bled down. But how do we tap in to let the youth know that there is a sustainable future and that, you know, not to give them the charge, but to give them the support um, also with some of the tools and the resources that we have. But what I often see is just the despair of like, this yeah. is what it is and this is just what it's going to be. So how do we kind of convert um, some of that energy into a more positive light and also vetting the talent so that we know how to um, involve the youth into um, some of these solutions? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think a really great uh, local example is Camden Town in North Minneapolis. So back in probably 2022, uh, during National Night Out, we did a, uh, a future engagement where we created these gigantic chalkboards and allowed uh, young people and other neighborhood residents to describe their ideal future for Camden Town. What does it look like? What could, what would it happen if I walked down the street? What are the resources that exist for me? And so for little kids, they wanted an ice cream shop. And for older kids, they wanted after school jobs. And they wanted to feel like the adults were paying attention and knew, knew them in the neighborhood and that they weren't a strange face. And so I think when you give young people the opportunity to imagine what they'd like the future to look like, suddenly there's an investment in it. They have something to lose because they have this picture of what is possible in the future. And I think often we move to the space of um, telling young people, here, you've got to prepare. This is what the future is going to look like. Uh, but really young people are in a space where they're closely feeling the transformation and change that's happening in society. My, my own son, who's 19, um, has heard me say for a long time that higher education is transforming and changing and that the value of a college education is not what it was previously. And the amount of time that that education lasts is not as long. The college education used to last you for 10 years in the workforce. It now lasts for three months. That is how long the um, uh, the, the education that you have learned is true because the, the world is changing so quickly. And so helping young people be a part of describing what they want the future to look like um, gives them the space to create it. Thank you, Krista. Thank you for great questions.
So Trista, uh, you, you'll uh, continue with us on the panel and, oh yeah, oh, can we please give Trista an applause? I am <laughs> an immigrant, I have no money. <laughs> Thank you, Trista. Um, she's not fighting the battle alone. And so now I I'm thinking out loud with you right now. So when, how does Trista succeed with her vision? Now, if she had somebody who could measure, interpret the data and communicate it, and we have one like that here in Minnesota. So we have Timothy Roman, he's gonna be with us on the panel. <laughs> Hi, Tim, welcome. So Thank I'll you, tell you a little bit about him, but um, I'm gonna introduce our panelists, but you, I'm gonna give you the short bio for the sake of time, but there is a handout available, so please uh, ask for that if you like. Uh, so. Uh, Tim is the co-founder and CEO of uh, Ecotone Analytics, and that's a Minnesota general benefit company and a certified B Corp. So they're good guys like uh, Sunrise Bank. Um, uh, Ecotone Analytics, they combine expertise in data analysis, interpretation of data, uh, research synthesis, and all of those things. But this is for uh, portfolio managers, impact investors, impact portfolio managers, so, so that this is a purposeful reporting. So he helps interpret data and communicate it. We have Ken Smith. He's an expert, an absolute expert in utility planning, uh, integration development. He's the CEO of Evergreen Energy here in St. Paul and the parent company District Energy St. Paul. I'm sure you all know about these, these two companies. And I always wonder, because I've known Chen for, for many, many years, like how is he not running the biggest utility company in America? He's pretty much the only one who's offering net zero. But a little bit about Ken, uh, uh, what he brings to the, to the region and, and to the country is expertise through experience. He developed before um, coming to Evergreen, District Energy. He spent over 20 years in corporations and the US Department of Defense to plan, implement um, energy projects globally. And so he brings us here to home. We have a representative of Sunrise Bank, and that's Laura Wildenborg. And Laura, <coughs> she specializes in FinTech. So that's financial technology. And, and she will tell you more about that later. Um, Laura uh, partners with companies about the bank's net zero vision. So net zero is, is important. So that means lending or resources go to solutions, such as what Tim interprets and Ken develops, uh, but directing funding from those things that cause net negative outcomes, social disparity, environmental <laughs> degradation, et cetera. So Laura helps contextualize that at the financial end. So we have three experts on the panel. Um, and uh, so uh, Ken, will you come up? So, or, Tim's, Tim's next. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah, oh, Tim, w will, you, uh, will you take it away, brother? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I love hearing Trista speak so much. I, I'm ready to concede my 15 minutes and just keep going with that. Uh, <laughs> blown away. Um, but welcome, everybody. 
And I want to say thank you to Steve and Phil Bjorgven and, and Trista. Uh, uh, and of course, a shout out to Mark Ritchie, uh, whom we thank for including us in the SDG roundtables all of these years. Uh, and again, to Sunrise for hosting and being a great banking partner for our business, uh, actually, as well. Uh, my name is Tim Roman. I'm CEO and co-founder of a Minneapolis-based company called Ecotone Analytics, uh, also a legal Minnesota Public Benefit Corporation and certified B Corp. Uh, we've been in business since 2015, and we work with government, philanthropy, and business, combining social and environmental research with applied economics to derive cost-benefit insights for organizational strategy, project decision-making, and impact investing. This presentation deck I'm going to show you is work that we're doing with a partner uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, to bring our analytic approach to urban regeneration. We presented a similar concept as the deck I'm about to show you uh, at the Global Steering Group for Impact Investing, the GSG, uh, which some of you may be familiar with, in Malaga, Spain, this past October. Um, there are many stakeholders that are interested in urban regeneration, urban renewal, uh, citizens, NGOs, municipalities, developers, etc. Um, but I'm here to talk about the future around SDG 11 and a, vis a vision for corporate leadership in placemaking uh, for the double material impacts of poverty alle alleviation and economic development for communities and workforce development, social responsibility, and brand value for companies. So, so I will show you the, our deck. Let's share my screen. Okay, can you see my screen okay, presumably? Um, so the title of the deck is Social, Outcome, Social Outcomes Investments for Safe, Safe and Sustainable Cities, Strategic Philanthropy and Anchor Institutions for SDG 11. Why will global companies care about urban regeneration in their geographies of influence? Uh, that's, and I'm not gonna read all, I'm not gonna read my slides, um, but these are not new business values that are uh, on the vanguard of the SDGs or anything. These are, these are pretty standard uh, business values, social responsibility and corporate citizenship, stakeholder relations, workforce development, market expansion, and risk mitigation. Uh, and you can see the details under those bullets to name just a few uh, of the values to, of strong communities to businesses. How will global companies participate in urban regeneration in the geographies of in, in their geographies of influence? Uh, this is kind of our our thesis, and the two companies that are working together, partnering uh, on developing this kind of this thought leadership. Um, so thinking about the future of social outcome strategy, uh, the impact value of community needs. And actually, we heard um, just a minute ago, Trista talking about uh, that great effort that they had in, in engaging youth on the north side, uh, having as an example of community-driven uh, need articulation. But this model that we're going to talk about takes, uh, you know, we hope it takes that from from those kinds of events that are articulating what the community needs to co-development and community participation during the course of the of, of development. Uh, so these are the two companies working on it. My, my company, Ecotone, and Almato SA uh, out of Buenos Aires, who is our partner. We've done this before. We've done our little part of this. 
cost-benefit analysis, uh, social environmental research for these companies, organizations. But this is a bigger application of that, sort of like, you know, taking taking what we've done and then combining these together um, for things like housing and uh, green infrastructure, tra transportation infrastructure, et cetera. But this is where we've, we've done them uh, kind of in small bits that have not been coordinated into a greater whole. Uh, so you can see it's across healthcare, housing, uh, environmental impact, workforce development, um, and education. And so what we're talking about um, is a holistic impact invested investment model. And so this is really the, the, um, the outline of our thesis. Uh, start with input from an underinvested community, community voice at the center of articulating need and how the development is going to um, play out. Um, using evidence-based and outcome-driven intervention strategies, which is really our specialty in the marketplace, articulate the plan for coordinated action. These, when, when, when done at a, at a community scale, these are by definition uh, public-private uh, and philanthropic partnerships. They need all three uh, sectors to participate. A trigger uh, signaling the to the mark to the market that something is happening. A lead investor or an anchor institution um, to begin leading what we hope becomes critical mass of other investors following on. A process where infrastructure and real estate leads, and human capital is transformed, and business follows. So this is a kind of market making um, concept as well. Capital sources from commercial, public, venture, philanthropic, and development. Uh, and this is, you know, talking about the future, the future um, that we sometimes participate in. I went down to uh, New York to the New York Fed a couple months ago to talk about the future of, um, of creative financial instruments for this type of, this type of development. So people are thinking about that as well. Um, and the result being that new markets are open for, for human development and GDP growth. This is uh, another bit of our work, which is causal relationships of social investments and outcomes to stakeholders. Many, many of you in the room may be familiar with the with theory of change and logic model work. Uh, we put that at the center of what we do. So you can see that we're trying to anticipate what those causal causal relationships are across short, intermediate, long-term and impact outcomes and impacts. But I'm not gonna stay too long on this. This is just an, one of the tools that we use for strat strategic planning. And this particular one that you're looking at is actually done for an organization, a national organization called Rebuilding Together that does um, home renovations. And this one particularly uh, was for DC, Alexandria, Virginia. We put, people at the center of the community to articulate needs, um, but we also put outcomes at the center of our analysis. So we are beginning to understand what, are, what, in, what investments are needed and what kind of outcomes are needed for the community. So you can see here, when we begin to classify them under like things like physical health and safety, mental health, uh, economic security, in, independence, et cetera, you can see what those drivers are and how we derive a net, 
the the math isn't here about how we derive the net present value, but this is the the um, where applied econ and research synthesis come together to understand the causal relationships. What is the effect size of those of of the interventions that are across those causal relationships, and then what is the value of that change ultimately? So this provides decision makers. Um, insights and information on the value of the investments that are being made in communities. We do visualization of, um, of what that social return on investment looks like. And we've found this to be, this is our traction in the marketplace is there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of small numbers and boxes, but when we were able to put it into a visualization like this, it gets folks to lean in and really try to understand, okay, here's the initial investment. Here are the the types of value drivers. Here's the um, here's how that is being valued to different stakeholders. And so you can see on the right hand side, there's a, a a range of stakeholders, not just one beneficiary, but other stakeholders like the state itself, uh, homeowners in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So showing the schema like this, we're hoping um, in our future visioning is that this acts like a kind of transparency of data and potential of impact that can convene actors around a given uh, community and the investments that are needed. Our partner in Buenos Aires uh, worked on a project called Barrio 31. And if you've seen the movie, The Two Popes, there's actually a scene with Jonathan Price where he's in, he's literally in Barrio 31 in, in Buenos Aires. Um, this was more of a slum integration uh, than urban renewal. So we're talking about informal economy, um, no lack of in, utter lack of infrastructure. Um, and this took a, a, this was kind of a capstone project for a lot of, <clears throat> um, a lot of the actors that funded this. This is probably the, one of the most funded urban redevelopment projects ever. Um, but the learnings that came out of this were about trust, uh, transparency, synergy, and adjacency. The you know trust being key between the players and the community. And so one of the things that attracted us as partner was they were talking about mate hours as one of their metro. They they weren't. They were saying they got a lot. They they just spent time in the community having mate. And so we're like, well, we, can, we should be able to count that as mate hours. How many hours were spent in the community understanding the needs of that community and turning those into the drivers for what the investments were um, ended up being. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on these on all of these slides, but basically transparency and impact ecosystem is what we're hoping is kind of like information glue. So when I showed you before what you know the the return on investment graphic and what the potential value is uh, of those outcomes to stakeholders, being able to do that kind of work to to share across the sectors so that each of the investors or the or, or the parties can know what part of a project that they want to either fund or drive. And uh, so that's that's kind of the challenge is how can information be used as this glue between cross-sector players in in models like this. Um, a little bit of new logic for impact investments instead of thinking about asset class like housing, education, upskilling, or local e economic development, 
thinking about an outcomes orientation. What are the outcomes that we want to see? Are there synergies that are happening between these asset classes? And what is that final uh, financial and social value? So kind of turning that on its side. And this was actually, you know, some of the, out the outcomes that are happening uh, or that are projected, at least for Barrio 31. And that is a $4 billion um, in improvement in the valuation of real estate and built environment, a $3 billion increase in personal income for the residents that are not being uh, forced out of the, out of the, the area, and a billion dollars in local economic development. I, I'm going to quickly go through this, but the, the adjacency bit of neighborhood, neighborhood value uh, creation strategy is that upgrade in neighborhood um, by reducing inequality and then capturing economic value via real estate developments, either in the, in the community or adjacent to the community. Um, for the neighborhood regeneration side and the, and the human capital building, there's high social impact, moderate returns and lower risk. And for investors that are coming in from the private capital markets, lower asset prices, market development and, and increased demand. Um, I'm going to skip that one because I kind of already talked about that. If you'd like to, to uh, talk to us more about this, you can reach us here or find me at Ecotone. Um, but I'm going to stop sharing right there and um, and maybe take questions. Yeah, so um, we're going to take questions at the end. If um, just after the panelists have or you know, done their piece. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ken, you ready to rock and roll? How about this one? All right. That looks good. Well, very good. Uh, and um, thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you today. And uh, following Trista, that was, that was fantastic. My first time hearing her, and I could have listened to many, many more hours, and I have many questions. Um, I'm going to um, talk about kind of what's going on in the energy system more broadly and how it's transforming and it's evolving uh, in a way that is kind of counterintuitive. Um, and so I've, I've called this evolving to circularity. Um, you've heard a little bit about uh, Evergreen. Uh, we're based here in St. Paul. Uh, it is a, it's owned by uh, District Energy St. Paul. Uh, and what we started doing was taking our capabilities to other campuses and communities around the United States. We've done work in Canada as well. So some of the locations that we are uh, located in, we now have operating locations in multiple places across the United States. Uh, our most recent um, uh, location is for Google in uh, Sunnyvale. Uh, so that's uh, one that we're very proud of. We're hoping to announce a couple more. So enough of the commercial. I want to get into what we're talk, here to talk about today. I'm going to start with uh, Edwards Deming. If anyone knows Edwards Deming, we have a couple. If you don't know him, you should look him up. He is really the, the father of total quality management, um, lean manufacturing. After World War II, he went to Japan and help them transform their manufacturing so that they became a global powerhouse and produce quality products, particularly in the 
automotive sector and then came back to the United States and, and did more of that work here. And he's got some great quotes and thoughts about how a company should run. It certainly aligns with SGG uh, goals. Um, but one I like in particular is every system is perfectly designed to get the result that it's, that it's achieving. And so as we think about systems, and we are having systems, that, this is a conversation about systems, um, the systems that we have are producing the results that we're getting. And so much of what is going on and why it's so hard is because it's system change. Another one of his thoughts was, well, without data, it's just another opinion. Uh, and so I'm going to try to share some data and opinion to, uh, with you. So what do we have as a system today? It's, it's largely linear. We have inputs, we do processes, we distribute products, we use those products, we dispose of those products, and some of those are disposed of properly and some of those are disposed of improperly. We are doing some recycling, we're doing some regeneration of, of products, but there is largely a take, make, use, dispose of attitude. And then we have a lot of that going into the atmosphere, whether it's land, air, or water. And we have data that shows that the systems that we have, this is just some headlines from Minnesota, for example, we have data that shows the systems that we have are having impacts on us, They're having impacts on our environment, um, whether it's nitrates or PFAs or uh, trash, you know, in the the state of Minnesota, our landfills are all filling up. It's a huge problem and it's an expensive problem. And so we have data that shows us the system that we have today, that's the results we're getting. This is the system we have is producing these results. We have an energy system too, and that's largely linear. We take energy, we move it to where we want to use it, we use it and we dispose of it. And that system is quite inefficient. So this diagram is put out by the Lawrence Livermore National Labs, um, a part of Department of Energy, US Department of Energy. And on the left-hand side is the prime energy. It's called prime energy. So it's our energy sources, whether it's solar, wind, hydro, coal, biomass, you get the idea, petroleum and where it gets used. So it gets used in electricity generation, it gets used in buildings, commercial, residential, industrial, and it gets used for transportation. So, and then on the right-hand side is, well, how much of that actually is getting used and how much of that is actually rejected? So this is today, this is data 2022. We are currently in the United States wasting 66% of the prime energy that we use as a country. Two thirds of the prime energy we utilize in the United States is wasted. And that's after an energy crisis in the 70s, where we've started saying we need to be more efficient. Actually, if you go back and look at the data in 1980, it was better than this. The system is designed, perfectly designed, to get the results that it's producing. This is the results we're producing today in the United States. So we have opportunities to reuse energy. We have to rethink about how we utilize energy. And we are in the midst of a transformation of energy system that does just that. And I appreciate what Trista says is, 
but go visit the places, go see the future that you want to have. And we do have some great examples around the world. And, and Steve and his comments, well, we go find ideas and we bring them back. Um, so uh, Hubert Humphrey, so we have Humphrey School uh, representatives here today and Trista is a, a graduate there. Um, one of his things was unfortunately our affluent society has also become, it's an affluent society. And that is very true. So really what we need to move to is more circular approaches. We need to move towards from linear to reusing and thinking much more differently about how we utilize all of our resources and energy is among them. And that is going on. So if you think about that, there's a lot of talk about wind and solar and we have now in Minnesota, we have uh, 2040 legislation to get to carbon free energy by 2040. Those are all really good things, but that's a, that's a means to the end. The energy that we're gonna generate and utilize for us will be carbon free, but how we use that energy is gonna be very, very important. And so companies like Siemens, global company thinking about, well, what are we gonna do with this clean energy? We're gonna generate hydrogen. You've seen in the news lately, Minnesota is actually one of the recipients of a hydrogen hub. So like billion dollars coming into this region to invest in hydrogen uh, generation and green hydrogen from um, carbon-free electricity. And so all of these sectors are gonna be integrating together and utilizing these energy sources, but it's gonna be different than we've done it before. So where do you go? Well, one of the places you can go to is Denmark. I was just there in December uh, with a delegation that had folks from Texas, Connecticut, Alaska, um, and uh, Nevada, California, to see regenerative solutions in play. Um, not ideas, not just a vision for the future, but in this case, to actually go see regenerative solutions in play. And that site that is down in the lower left-hand corner, it's called Green Lab. It's, uh, and in the, it's outside of a little town uh, called Skive. And this was a community that had a vision. They had some land, they had renewable energy around this land. And they were like, what could we attract here that would actually be a vision for the future? What could we attract here that's gonna be jobs for the future? And so Green Lab was, was brought forward. And at this particular site, they have multiple companies have built their facilities and they're sharing not only water and electricity, but they're actually sharing their waste streams. So it's a very much a circular approach on this particular site. And so things like waste heat from one particular process is getting used in another process. Very fascinating. I would encourage you to look up Green Lab uh, uh, DK. It is, uh, there's a couple of different Green Labs out there. Make sure you're getting the one that's in Steve, uh, Denmark. And uh, a great example of how we have to think differently when it comes to industry, that it's not necessarily all the same owner, but being thoughtful about what we co-locate and how we have these industrial hubs, so we can have industrial symbiosis and utilize the energy and the various sources of energy and, and um, uh, byproducts that are coming from their manufacturing processes to get higher efficiency. Another one that I've been to is in Zarbeck, Germany. Uh, fascinating uh, community. This was a community that there was 
this particular site you see down on the, the uh, lower part, you see all the wind towers and, and solar panels, and there's also biomass and biogas and digesters and recycling. It's an unbelievable site. This is an old military site where they stored uh, armaments and the, it was no longer used and it was going to be sold. And so the city, the mayor, it's a village really, about 6,500 6, people roughly. And the, the mayor had a vision like, well, let's grab this thing. It's about a mile outside of the town. And, um, and then they brought the community together, start thinking about what could we do? And they start thinking about climate and what kind of solutions could they bring? And they involved young and old and schools. And then, so they envisioned utilizing this for what they call as a bioenergy park. And this little community, this place you would wanna go see is now attracting visitors and investment. So they have been a major investment of different storage technologies are being demonstrated in this community. Um, up in the upper right-hand corner is actually an electrolyzer factory that's been built there. It was an international competition for this electrolyzer factory to get built somewhere. Well, this community, because of what they did and transformed their energy system, said, well, we can do this. And so they went to the company, they competed, and they won this factory and these jobs coming into this community. So to Trista's point earlier, they started thinking about the future they wanted. They got shared values on how they're going to accomplish it. And they started transforming their community in a much more integrative way. Uh, Finland, another place that I've been, actually, see Jeff here, we've been there together. Um, Jan here, we've been there together. Uh, fascinating. Finland is a country that has said that they want to be fossil fuel free by 2035. Uh, Finland's been in the news a little bit lately because they have a border with another country that's at war with Ukraine. Um, and they had some de dependencies upon that neighbor. Um, and so Finland is utilizing uh, district energy systems, or utilizing waste heat. And in one particular project, with two projects that I wanted to connect with them about on the trade mission. But this one is a big announcement how they're using waste heat from a data center called a Giga Data Center. It's over a billion dollar investment by Microsoft that they're going to capture the waste heat from that data center and take it into their district energy systems. And you can see there, it is going to heat about 250,000 customers. It's all carbon-free energy. And about 60% of the area's heating will be generated by waste heat. 40% from the new data center and then wastewater. And so they're going to take the waste heat from wastewater. Actually, they're already doing this and utilizing that with clean electricity to heat their buildings. This is a project that we're working on similarly here uh, in Minnesota, two different projects. Fascinating how they're doing this. They're moving very, very quickly, um, but they're thinking differently and they're going across sectors and integrating their energy systems in a different way so that it's carbon-free and much more efficient. And so that leads me to uh, my last example, and that is Duluth. So this is a project we're working on. Um, we worked with the city of Duluth to um, get a DOE grant 
to study utilizing the waste heat in the wastewater treatment plant um, that is there that effluent goes into the St. Louis waterway into uh, Lake Superior. And you see that red line um, that is West Superior Street and that street is gonna be opened up to replace their water and wastewater infrastructure. The street's gonna get rebuilt. And so as a great opportunity where the circle is, that's where the wastewater treatment plant is. This is a Justice 40 community. So they've lived with this wastewater treatment plant in their community for a very long time. Well, maybe they should benefit from it. And so we are doing the preliminary engineering now to take the waste heat from the effluent of this wastewater treatment plant, take it into this community, utilizing electricity and heat pumps to heat all the buildings along that corridor. The DOE is very excited about this project and we're very hopeful that we're gonna be able to get this funded. That street gets started opening up in 2026. So we're doing the engineering now, we're working on grading the, the funds together to make the implementation happen and then bring carbon-free energy uh, to this community. Thanks to uh, examples that we saw from Finland and other countries as well, but certainly Finland, we learned a lot from them on how they actually are applying the use of waste heat in the wastewater. Um, what is going on, I mentioned, there's a transformation going on in our energy system. So if you think about what has been going on with our energy system after the energy crisis in the 70s, you start thinking also about climate. What actions did we start taking? And what actions did other countries start taking? Well, we start putting renewables on the grid. And, and then as more renewables came onto the grid, the conversation turned to electrification. Well, how do we use this renewable electricity from wind and solar and so forth to electrify more things? And that's a natural evolution. We also said we need to be more efficient. And so lights, refrigerators, appliances, a number of things we started making more efficient. I call that the efficiency of things. And then the conversation turned to, well, how do we make buildings more efficient? How do we make industry more efficient? So we started pulling back and thinking more holistically. What this evolves to though, is where Finland, and Germany is moving to, uh, Denmark is already there, is it moves to where you integrate those things together and I'm now using waste streams. I'm thinking much more circularity and I'm utilizing the renewable energy that I have to make the system more efficient, more carbon free, much more effective. And so the evolution is towards circularity. And this is actually accelerating currently, particularly in Northern Europe and the countries that are dependent upon uh, natural gas coming out of Russia because of energy's insecurity that they have is actually accelerating their activity towards circularity. So it's counterintuitive. We, we've moved from a, you think nature is circular to linear, and then now we're moving back to circularity and if you want to go to where the future is going to be, this is where the future is going. This is where the future is. Um, and I've tested this with a number of a number of delegations, a number of countries. I have yet to anyone say, no, this is not what the future is. This is the future. We're going to move to circularity in energy. And the faster we get there, the better off we are going to be, both for the climate and for energy security. There is tremendous opportunity in circular economy. Certainly there's going to be innovation that occurs. 
There's economic development. Billions of dollars are being invested in this space. There's job opportunities. And among those opportunities, as a system is changing, and it's not a transition when it gets used, it's, it's underselling how difficult, but also how, how major of a shift this is. As a system is changing, gaps will emerge. And so new technologies, new ideas, new companies will need to fill those gaps because the incumbents, they're not set up for it yet. And that's what's occurring. And that's really for our company. That's why our company is growing is we are coming in. We're able to help you know, cast a vision for the future and move all the way through the implementation, all the way to the operation uh, of those systems. So there's tremendous opportunity as we move to a much more circular future. Thank you. Uh, Laura Wildenborg of Sunrise Bank. Uh, she's fighting the, the, the good battle on the financial side. Will, will you come up and tell us your story? Oh, wow, how did she do that? Is that the future? Hello, everyone. What does your bank account have to do with sustainability? Today, I'm going to talk about Sunrise Banks and our role in the transition to a net zero economy. What is net zero and why is it important? Um, what, what has, how has Sunrise used the framework of sustainability? And how do you turn a basic bank account into a meaningful way to, to mitigate climate change? The transition to a net zero economy is underway. Net zero means reducing greenhouse gas emissions to the lowest extent and then removing any ongoing emissions. More and more companies, cities, universities, and financial institutions are making net zero commitments. This is all based around the Paris Climate Agreement, which the goal is to uh, reduce emissions to net zero by 2050 in an effort to limit global temperature uh, rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This was signed by 192 countries plus the European Union 2016. Pivoting to the private industry, looking at the list of Forbes 2000 list uh, that have made net zero commitments, it has grown from 20% to 50% in the last three years. This indicates that net zero and sustainability efforts are becoming essential for businesses. And this is dri driven by a number of factors. First, customers are demanding it. Uh, they actually, a uh, study came out by McKinsey that indicated that they're willing to pay five and a half times more for a sustainability marketed product than a traditional one. Another factor is climate risk, which leads to financial loss. For example, an increase in extreme weather events, flooding and drought has affected supply chains and then business assets and buildings themselves. And finally, climate regulations are becoming more common globally and are making their way towards the US. The SEC put together guidance on, for corporations on climate disclosures. The challenge is getting to net zero is really hard. This, uh, companies perceive it as complex, expensive and risky. Of the 50% that have made the commitments, just 4% have met the minimum requirements 
that are laid out by the UN's Race to Zero campaign. So this indicates that companies are looking for a place to start. And Sunrise has started with sustainability. Sustainability is needed to drive a just and socially equitable transition. The basic definition of sustainability is meeting the needs of current generations without compromising the needs of future generations. It's balancing the three pillars of environment, economy, and society, also known as the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity. Uh, now, what does this mean for a bank? Uh, the Climate Safe Lending Network said it best. So they, they have this, they talk about how a bank needs to finance a just and regenerative economy that enables humans to thrive on a flourishing planet. Just, regenerative, flourishing. That's where all of these pillars start to come together to paint a bright future. So Sunrise Banks utilizes this holistic approach. And we've done this as David outlined through a few commitments that we've made. As a B Corporation, we need to maintain the triple bottom line. And as a member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, we have to uphold values-based banking. So we've really embraced the idea of social responsibility. As a community bank, it's built into our DNA. As a community development financial institution, CDFI, as David outlined, at least 60% of our loans go to low to moderate income communities. And finally, my favorite, through our FinTech partnerships, we are extending that mission beyond the borders of Minnesota across the US to get access to those who are underbanked or underserved get them access to financial services and help to build their financial wellness. Sunrise Banks has made our net zero commitment and that within the planet pillar. And our first step was to calculate our carbon emissions. The thing is a bank has a unique carbon footprint. We have to account for both our operational emissions and our financed emissions. So operational emissions are our business travel, our branches, heating and cooling, our buildings, and our financed emissions are our indirect emissions. So those are the emissions associated with our loan portfolio. So when we did that uh, calculation, we found that 99% of our emissions are financed emissions. So how do we start to identify how we can start reducing those emissions? How can we take those steps and build those products and services that can make that happen? We're approaching that from three different areas, climate tech, climate resilience, and the net zero transition. So to start looking to the future through climate tech, uh, our team, the FinTech innovation team, stays innovative by showing up where banks don't typically go. So I've been going to climate tech conferences, workshops, and following a lot of uh, articles. And uh, climate tech is specifically designed to redu reduce carbon emissions. So some of the really uh, in interesting ones that have been coming up are batteries and battery storage, and then also carbon capture and removal. The one that I'll highlight today is Grid Catalyst is in Minnesota, and they've put on some amazing events that I've gone to this year. Um, they are an accelerator for clean tech startups and they help connect entrepreneurs with mentorship, um, investors. And then my favorite, which is 
actual project demonstrations. So they connect them with partners so they can test out this technology, ensure that it's viable and that it can be scaled. We also seek to build climate resilience in our communities. So this is ensuring that our communities uh, can prepare for, recover from, and adapt to the impacts of climate change. As a CDFI, we are working with the groups that will be most impacted by climate change. So we're in a, we're in a really unique position to start helping to reduce the financial barriers for these communities, thinking about how can we help them retrofit their homes so that they can reduce the energy usage, uh, putting on solar panels, putting insulation in their walls. And one piece that we're looking at is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest climate investment in US history. There are funds in there that are dedicated specifically to CDFIs. And so we've teamed up with a nonprofit hub to apply for the grants through the EPA, and we're still awaiting to see what happens there. As a bank, we can also use our products and services to finance the net zero transition. So what are we doing today? I'm gonna to back up for a moment and share that I never imagined working at a bank. I uh, was an undergrad as an environmental studies major where I spent uh, time learning about climate change, deforestation, uh, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, pretty heavy topics. We get together with my classmates and be like, what can we do as students? And we realized the power of our dollar, where we spend our money. So we started going to thrift stores and local food co-ops. Co it wasn't until I came to Sunrise that it's not just about where you spend your money, it's also about where you store your money because your money doesn't just sit in the bank account. Was it? <laughs> your money doesn't just sit in a, the bank account as a deposit, it is leveraged on the other side as loans. So your bank account matters. So Sunrise Banks is building the net zero deposit fund, where if you sign up for this, you know that your bank account is going to help reduce, remove, or avoid carbon emissions. It's as simple as signing up for a checking, savings, or certificate of deposit and saying, yes, I wanna participate. And you know that it's going on the other side towards net zero loans, such as energy reduction and efficiency projects, putting insulation in your walls, um, renewable energy, solar panels, geothermal, green buildings that meet uh, national and international standards, and clean transportation, electric vehicles. And Sunrise already has a number of these types of loans on the books. We are, we've been funding some amazing multifamily buildings that are meeting these standards. The thing is, the Net Zero Deposit Fund is helping to turn your basic bank account into a meaningful way to mitigate climate change. If you've made your Net Zero commitment at your company, it helps give you an easy first step in making that change. So overall, our goal is to take this framework and use it so that we are pursuing a vibrant future. So as you start to think about what is your, your sustainability journey, your net zero journey, um, or your personal journey, uh, a few takeaways for me is check out the climate tech space. Grid Catalyst is one. Um, just thinking about what's out there, what are people doing, and how can they take on this really big challenge we have. Second, stay tuned for updates on the Inflation Reduction Act as we learn more about grant opportunities and tax incentives. 
And then finally, you can join the waiting list for the net zero deposit fund. If you're in person, you should have a QR code in front of you on your notebooks um, that will take you to it. If you sign up, you'll just get updates on how things are going. We're planning to roll it out for commercial accounts first and then for consumers down the road. Uh, online, we will ensure that you get the link as well. So if you wanna learn more or talk to me, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Or if you want to nerd out about sustainability, you can, of course, connect with me uh, via email. Thank you very much. I look forward to the panel. Thank you, Laura. If we all would do our little thing, how hard can it be? I say that knowing that everyone in this room is exactly working on these very things. Um, at this moment i uh, want to invite the panel we have flora and ken here in person and trista and tim online we have a good online audience and i want to remind you online to post your questions in the chat and and we will be fed those questions up here thank you um questions from the room online for our Panel. I'm sure this stirs your mind a little bit. Ken, yeah, Ken wants to ask himself. No, no. <laughs> uh, so Trista, one of the things that um, you mentioned the speed of change. Uh, we have so much change and transformation occurring that our policymakers, whether it's at the local, the state, the federal level, are having difficulty keeping up. So our policymakers and our policy regulators, um, there's just so much change occurring that what do we do about that? Because in order to go to that future, we're going to have to move much more quickly than we are in adjusting our policies and adjusting our regulations and in some cases, we're going to need more flexibility while you're also providing uh, the protection. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Um, you have to get in front of it. So we know what a lot of this transformation and change is going to look like. And so you bring together experts. Um, there's been some really great work that actually the Vatican's been doing about artificial intelligence, bringing together experts and talking through what is this going to mean for humanity? And they've been doing that over the last couple of years. This isn't one of these since ChatGBT sort of things. This has been a long-term conversation because we know that this transformation is coming. And so what I'd like to see is us picking elected officials that are future-focused, that are not reactive to what's happening, but are being really thoughtful about what's coming next. And they're developing a shared vision of what we want the country to look like in the future and what are the steps that we have to take now to get there. Thank you. And we have a question from the room. Yes. Um, will you please uh, state your who Yes, you are? I, I will. Um, hi, Trista. This is Hannah Kitacho Cruiser with uh, Executive Director of Face to Face Health and Counseling. We, serve, we are a nonprofit serving young people to advance um, economic and health equity and, uh, in a variety of ways, including healthcare, housing. A lot of the things that were discussed uh, with the youth justice as well as workforce development uh, to really truly um, uh, transform uh, lives and communities. 
And as I, um, I really appreciate this this panel. I'm just like it's just really thinking about wow, there's a lot here. But what just a, a higher level um, um, conversation. I I remember lots of conversations about um, I've had with you two to start around how do communities identify the needs um, that is current and how do we uh, think future? Right when we're dealing with a lot of crisis, you know, in the moment. Who are the partners who step in and, and really hold that future? Who are the capacity builders? Because one of the things I see in, in human services, and, and I think also Tim, um, hi Tim, we have been benefiting from Ikatana uh, work and it's been wonderful uh, to partner with you. And, and so my question is, like, um, nonprofits contribute so much to the economy, the human uh, improving the human condition and the really vital components of, of, of uh, life. How does that partnership work? Uh, you know, businesses, corporations, and nonprofits to actually see the future together and not in in, in silos, right? Because uh, a lot of systems change that was discussed here. The systems are doing what they're designed to do. We know that, and so that's not working. And so, how do we? Uh, how do you see this happening? And really, truly being invested in creating the capacity now to do the thinking and working towards the future in the human sector. Hannah, it's so good to hear your voice, and that's a fantastic question. I think we need to create more spaces where we are imagining the future together. So it can't be what one nonprofit is doing or what a couple nonprofits or one business or a couple businesses. We have to have a picture of what the future of Minnesota looks like and what the future of the country looks like and what the future of the world looks like. And that means you have to create spaces where people can radically imagine together what they'd like that future to look like. Not all of the challenges that we're facing because we're all really clear about what those look like. But what do we want it to look like? And then through that, you find unusual partners, including nonprofit partners to make that future come true. Thank you, Krista. Um, I'm going to read one here from the online community. Uh, this is also for you, Trista. You're popular today, so I hope you enjoy the moment. <laughs> uh, we get to shine in your light a little bit. But um, this is from Mark Nichols. Uh, he's asking, do you have a resource kit or a point uh, to the, so is there a center of excellence for on futurism? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Future Good does some of that work, especially when it comes to SDGs and the future of doing good. We keep track of trends. We train people through Future Good Studio how to do this work. Um, but there are also futurists that work on the future of energy and the future of health and the future of research and the future of finance. Whatever your area is, there are there is at least a futurist, if not groups of futurists that are working on that. And so I'd encourage you to set Google alerts for yourself, future of whatever you're interested in. And what that allows you to do is to start to get a, a steady stream of information of what's coming next for the causes and communities that you care about. Excellent, thank you. And sir, you were next and then we go to you. Thanks, Steve Kelly, the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, this is a question for any of the panelists. As I was listening to people, I was thinking about the problem of silos. So several of you identified 
projects that require people coming across different sectors. In Ken's presentation, uh, Tim's work sounded that way too. And um, Laura's um, financing of efficiency and weatherization in buildings. If, if you look in our current setup, the folks doing weatherization are not well connected to the folks, to the utility folks that spend money on energy efficiency or decarbonization. So do we need, are there uh, existing structures that are doing a great job of uh, getting us across these silos? Uh, and if not, what additional structures or institutions do we need? It wouldn't be 2024 if I wasn't on mute. Uh, I was gonna say that's an amazing question. And I think that's the, that's the nut to crack. And we think with, um, with transparent sharing of information and anchor institutions, we can begin to get that momentum, but we don't know. I mean, we, we don't know what that first mover is in, in our schema, in our area. You know, when we talk to funders, they're looking for bankable projects. So how are there, how are we creating potential assets that could be bankable to get, to get the, um, you know, to get that kind of money as a funder into these schemas? Um, but yeah, this is the key question. We, we start with community need and we hear the needs of the community, then what? You know, we've got this information. This is what the community wants. These are the actors that are, are that also have, um, you know, co-interest in those outcomes. How, what is that thing that gets the that gets people moving? I don't know. I don't know. We we have some ideas and we are convening, but there's there's nothing magic that I know of yet. Laura, let, let's hear it also from you. When so looking at Minnesota, we have a number of organizations working in the environmental space. Uh, one that comes to mind is the Center for Energy and the Environment, really bringing together a lot of different things. And one example is uh, to do a PACE loan, you, pretty much, you have to have an energy audit done. PACE loan is property assessed clean energy. It's for commercial buildings, Sunrise does them. Uh, so to have that energy audit done, CEE can help with that. Um, and then they also connect with utilities. So they're kind of this hub that helps to disseminate information, educate, but also start actually doing things, which is really exciting. So starting to think about some of those essential partners um, in the in Minnesota specifically, I know that's not global, but global Minnesota is a hub that's starting to share information. So I think that's really important as well. I wish there was the magic bullet. There isn't. Um, there's some people that are doing it well, but I think one thing that I've seen in, in all the different sites I've gone to, and Stephen, you and I have traveled a number of places as well, there is one thing that is consistent in all of them, particularly at the community level, that change somebody, that they, they grab onto it and they want it, they have a shared vision, and they bring the energy to make it happen. Um, you can't bring it from the outside. You try to do it to them, they're going to resist. It will die. So it has to be in the community that wants to change. And whether that is a campus or a town or a business or whatever it is, they have to want it. And then I think finding examples 
and, and sharing more of the examples. Well, who's doing it really well so they can be inspired? Uh, I think that's a part of it. But uh, one of the rules we have is it's one of the Kenisms, I guess, in our company is that we can't want it more than they do. So if we're working with a community and they don't want it enough, we can't bring that energy to them. We'll wait until they want it. The only circuits and wires and can do it. Krista, you had a word. I, I was just going to add, I think everybody is spot on, um, but there has been a really great movement of collective impact, which is really about how do you pull diverse organizations together to create transformative change. And I think um, nonprofits have been doing that for a long time because they're resource constrained. And so you have to work together to be able to create change. Um, what I'm most excited about are those collective impact tables where uh, corporations join into the conversations and government leaders uh, do as well. I think locally, the African-American Leadership Forum is a great example of what that cross-sector partnership looks like, but there are similar examples across many different issue areas. So to, we have the lady in the back here with our next question. Hello, everybody. I'm Adriana Alejandro Sorio, and I'm today I'm representing the Child-Friendly Governance Project. I have to admit that I'm very heartwarmed of all the questions that are surrounding youth. Um, our organization is an empower of children and young people bringing uh, to essentially create the future that they want um, and mostly focusing on how do you build an effective voice uh, for them to have participation, uh, to develop critical skills, realize their rights and actively engage in um, society. We know that uh, the we're creating consumers, uh, we're not creating citizens. And when you think about it, I hear today uh, a lot of terms of shared value and you know, collective impact, but I do not hear where the children and young people's voices are centered. Um, I know that there was a, com a comment, um, how do you teach SDGs to children? They know, and they've been talking about it. In fact, uh, UNICEF had a, a rural report and they mentioned that climate change and mental health are their biggest issues right now but they know that they're becoming cynical. Nobody's listened to them. There's no effective um, systems to listen to children. There's no institu institutionalization. I hear people uh, talking about Denmark and Sweden. Sweden had this fantastic way of listening to children using Minecraft. All children know Minecraft. They will build the city that they want with it. Um, obviously, Tristan mentioned Camden, which is another wonderful experience on how to listen to children and how they can be um, uh, participant and, and invested in it. And you have to remember, these are going to be your future workers. These are going to be your future employees. These are going to be the ones that are 50% of the population right now, but 100% of the future. And we have to invest in it. So my question and my comment rather is, what, who, who is investing in it and how are we investing in these pipelines? So the children and young people's voices are, in, are, are really embedded in every decision as opposed to coming top down, that it's all intergenerational. I'm really interested in what you have to say, Tim, and how do we promote the shared social ROI? So uh, where the money's coming from, which is most likely going to be from corporations, from large family foundations or larger foundations, it's not gonna come from nonprofits. We are doing everything we can right now. Um, so how are, what is a business case and how can we expand the business case of making 
um, this alignment of bringing in the voices of children and youth that in order to create the shared value of a better tomorrow, who are interested in you know, en energy uh, you know, regeneration, who are interested in being uh, young enough and getting a debit card. Um, I know my kid is 12 and he's really pissed off that he doesn't have uh, one uh, because he needs to be 13. Um, all of these things really involve children's voices and we're just living them at the margins. And there are better ways to do it um, that are, you know, examples of that are, bound, uh, are abundant. So um, actually one, just one quick thing. I noticed that Barrio 31, 50% of them were young people. They're under 24 and they even had child participation involved in the decision making and in the strategy. So just, I am curious, what is the business community thinking about it and how can we you know, how can we move this forward? Thank you, Adriana. Miss you. Uh, good to hear your voice. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'll talk to our, our business partners about that, about what the role of children and youth was in Barrio 31. I'm really interested to know more about that. I don't know what their experience was, um, but, you know, we're always trying to improve our way of doing business with clients and mm -hmm. I mean, we through stuff that we've done like at the impact hub or the finnovation lab or whatever we had some uh contact with some of the some high school kids that were in the west metro that were talking about great issues and you just see these amazing leaders emerge like i mean we're talking like 14 and 15 year olds that are blowing your mind with their maturity and their ability to have uh, to articulate a vision and to work with each other. Do they work with each other better? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely gonna follow up with my our partners to see what, what that experience was um, when they did that. But I don't know, thank you, thank you so much for that, for making that, uh, for carving out a space for, for these voices and in, in this meeting. Just comment from um, I can just comment from our own company. One of the things that we we do a lot of outreach, particularly in, in college and, and universities, and we, we host tours and we talk to a lot of students. Uh, and many of the projects that we're getting involved in, we have uh, interns from the campus involved in the projects. Um, and then there's, I mean, what's the benefit to us is they come up with great ideas. And so there's actually tools that have been developed by interns on our projects that we continue to apply on other projects. So it is, I'll give you a quick example of a project we're working on right now. We had an intern from Germany who was uh, finishing up his master's degree. And so we put him on this waste heat recovery project, both for Duluth and for St. Paul. And one of the reasons why I wanted to utilize a student, one he was very sharp, but also doors open for students. And so his getting access to data and information we needed, everybody wants to be helpful to a student. So that speed at which we were able to get the information we needed was much faster by having a student in the front than if we went through traditional channels. That's a, that's a fantastic point. And I think um, if, if you took Laura Ingalls Wilder from Little House on the Prairie and you brought her to a Target, she would lose her mind because there's, you know, a hundred different types of shampoo and fluorescent lighting. And, you know, it just would be so 
uh, foreign to her that she wouldn't understand what was going on. But if you put her in a classroom, she would know exactly what was going on because everybody is lined up in their seats and there is a teacher in front telling you and maybe the smart board would be surprising, but I think everything else is pretty similar. We are on a school schedule that is made for um, kids to be farming and I cannot get my kids to mow the lawn. And so I think we have really built this uh, system that is is not what the future of work looks like. And so we have an opportunity now to reconsider that. And we did a lot of that work during the pandemic. And I was really excited about the transformation that was happening uh, in education during that time. But we decided, let's go back to normal. Let's do what we did before. Instead of taking what we learned from that experience and moving it forward, how do we teach students to use AI? How do we help them collaborate uh, across classrooms and across countries. That is what our future workforce needs is uh, ability to remix new technologies, ability to have cultural competence in, uh, in new situations, to be a part of a global workforce. We have to make sure that we're investing in our education system so that that's possible. Steve, how are we with time? Um, what time is it? Could someone tell me? 11.18. I think as long as you are all good, I think we can go on for at least another five minutes or so. But but I have my own burning question, and then I'll hand the, the, the mic back to uh, uh, Hyun Kim when you have a question right after me, and then maybe we should start to wrap it up. Here's my question. Ken, this is primarily a question for you, but it could, by implication, be answered by anybody else to it. It has to do with uh, how we name and label things, because Ken, we've talked before about capturing waste heat, how valuable it is, lowering that 66%. But yet, um, even in your own presentation, even when it was recaptured, we still called it waste heat. And I thought, should we, number one, should we be renaming it? Or two, is it actually better to continue to call it waste heat because it's better for our mentality that we ought to use it? So that's, that's my question. We're in a world of transformation. Sometimes you need to rename things a little bit. What would you say, Ken? I think it's a really good point. Um, you see that going on right now. So district energy systems, for example, been around for a long time, right? Uh, and yet you're seeing different names like network geothermal or uh, 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 thermal loops, things like that to make it more approachable. Cause sometimes a really good idea sounds like an old idea when you use an old term. And so, in some cases, you do need to refresh, even though it's the same thing, putting a different name on it is necessary. But also the work that we're doing, because we are utilizing ideas internationally, tend to try to utilize the terms that are transferable across, across countries and, and languages. And so, you know, things like waste heat, people get that. It's utilized in, in other countries. But, it's a really good point. Sometimes you do have to change the terms just so people will take a fresh look at it. Thank you, Ken. John Kim, you'd like to ask a question? As a Ramsey, my name is Hyun, and I own a company that has been doing civil engineering business for 14 years, and I'm pivoting into IT, cybersecurity, smart city, and AI business. And I really totally agree with you as a Ramsey County Workforce Innovation Board of Director that we are working vigorously with teenagers from 15 up and then underrepresented 
community in Ramsey County. But what I like to really talk about it is South Korea. South Korea is a leader in IT and digital country. And I visited the smart city concept that they studied for 20 years and zero emission issue too. So I know Denmark and other countries, Northern Europeans are good, but South Korea is vigorously doing that. So I, I used to be a board of regent for University of Minnesota, and I like to offer University of Minnesota to work together. I work with KAIST in South Korea and SNU in South Korea and South Korean government. And I like to bring their knowledge and their AI. They're one of the best in AI uh, technology, like USA, China, and Korea is following. And that's why I want to talk to you, Steve, that I think that joint research, University of Minnesota and South Korea will be benefited. So I really appreciate your, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, I want to recognize quickly, of course, South Korea. There is a tremendous amount of things happening there. Um, digital twin development, metaverse, a lot of digital technologies, green technologies, hydrogen, steel. Yeah, indeed. Last question. Yeah, Todd Levko had, has been waiting. Uh, yep. Todd Levko. Um, you know, 66% of wasted energy sounds like <laughs> <laughs> totally apart from energy. You, you know, Stephen, on, on your question, which is really basic, most uh, universities and teaching systems emphasize um, silo thinking, become specialist and an expert in some field rather than the idea of integrative, you know, thinking. And maybe, maybe, Part of this that's never included is the idea of changing in, in teaching styles. Question I have is that when you listen to individual presentations and all the presentations together, you start thinking of the number of factors in terms of complexity theory, where what we're seeing is a change in the nature and number of factors which are involved and the implications which they have when they're integrated, as opposed to the idea of when they're separate. And that leads you to the question of of two factors here. One is the question of understanding of all secondary and tertiary factors, because people can think of a cause and effect for a short term, but not a long term, and implications of the possibilities, all of that. Secondly, is the factor of the question of fairness. You know, what you're talking about, Laura, with the idea that, that there's a question of fairness that most people don't include, because cost and benefit often doesn't include fairness. So the question becomes, how do we change a thinking style to integrative? And secondly, how do we change our factors of the institutions? That changes the nature of implications for what people's loss or benefit becomes. I think that's a wonderful last question. And if we can have the panelists each take that on because I think we're going to get some really great perspectives. And if I was in the audience, I would take notes because that could be the next Nobel Prize. <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. Um, I wish I did. 
Um, I will say this, I ask this a lot when I'm in front of students. How many of you have taken a course on systems thinking? And seldom does a hand go up. If I have 100 students in front of me, I might get three or four hands. That's part of the problem, is we are not teaching. And I always tell people, go take a course, go read a book, go learn about it, because you need to have a systems approach for this world that we're in and the world that's coming in order to actually be a part of generating those solutions. Um, the other part into the, the ladies' comments, just data or in the energy space, and so much of what we're talking about and AI is a part of the energy space as well, data is the lifeblood of all of this. It's the lifeblood of all of it because it's beyond our capacity as humans to control what is coming. The systems that are gonna be so dynamic, so many inputs, and so integrative, it's beyond our ability as humans to actually control. All right. I think you have an interesting one. I think, um, I think about how Sunrise invited me to work here, knowing that I did not have a background in banking. <laughs> um, so pulling in voices that aren't typically in the room is crucial to get that holistic view, get, get more views and start to think about what is beyond banking and how can we start incorporating other stakeholders? I can go next. Um, <clears throat> I think our clients pay us to find those other factors. Uh, a lot of times we're working with clients that have only dealt with financial factors. And so we are on a mission to find every social and environmental factor that is material to that client that we can uh, begin to look at how much, um, you know, research power, statistical power, whatever is behind that and put those in front of our clients. You know, our, our dream when we started was that we would add two columns to the spread, you know, to the spreadsheet of business, social and economic, uh, so that decisions are made with right now, those two col those columns have been vacant or they've not been columns. Um, but now, <laughs> you know, we've got the columns and we can fill them with data. Uh, and that's been our role is to try to bring more, more factors, integrate more factors into the decision making, integrate more factors into the calculus than have ever previously been considered or thought that was even possible uh, because of the silo between ac academy and business. You know what I mean? Like we kind of think of ourselves as pracademics. Uh, Adriana's probably heard that before, <laughs> but the practical, you know, like, practical application of of academy generated learning um so i you know it's our mission to bring more of those factors that haven't been considered before into the decision making i agree with everything that, that my fellow panelists have have said um i think what i'll add is for each of us, we have a responsibility to diversify our own networks. So if you're only spending time that with people that look like you and live where you live and are in your sector, you're going to be exposed to the exact same ideas. And that innovation might be just around the corner. Um, I know for me, when I started my futurism journey, I went to a, a convening <laughs> called Abundance 360, which is uh, 360 individuals that are trying to create innovations that help a billion or more people. And in that space, there were 360 of us. There were about 10 women 
and there was about two other people of color. And so when you are describing a picture of what the future is going to look like, who is around that table? And initially it felt really uncomfortable because I'm used to being in philanthropy and nonprofit spaces. And there was like, you know, the, the head of Uber and Salesforce and, you know, other sort of big, big companies. Um, but what I realized is that my discomfort was because I was learning new things and I was stretching and growing and approaching ideas in new ways. And I wasn't used to doing that because I was used to being in the places where I felt like an expert. And so we have to lean into that discomfort. The other thing that was really interesting is one of the presenters talked about probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, a, a, a drone technology that you could fly in a circle and it would give you an up to the minute 3D map of the neighborhood. And so he took us to the rooftop of the hotel and he did this and it was super impressive. And I said, what would you use this for? And he said, you know, it could be like an up to the minute uh, Google Maps. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard my entire life. Why would you have drones circling all the time to tell us the street is still there? That is not helpful. I said, could you use it after a natural disaster to figure out where people might need help and to figure out what roads are blocked? For emergency first responders and he said I'd, I'd never thought of that that's a that's a great use for this and they they've been using it for that um if you put anybody in the social sector in that space that's the first thing that they would have thought of that is not a genius idea um but because we're not spending time in the same sectors we're not exposed to those different perspectives and i think it's the onus is on all of us to make sure that we are in those spaces where we may feel uncomfortable but we'll be exposed to new ideas Well, now we're getting to the end of our event this morning and um, <clears throat> done with questions for now on. But Krista, while we have you there, and um, are we going to be optimistic going into the rest of the day? Can you give us some final words? <laughs> uh, am I going to jump in a lake? And... No, we, we get to decide, do we have a Hunger Games future or a Star Trek future? And that is um, the decision that we are making every single day. Are we willing to do the work to make the future more beautiful and equitable? And I think we've got a, a room full of people that are willing to do that work. So I'm very hopeful about what's coming next. I am hopeful. How do you guys feel? Yeah. Yeah. I know that everyone in the room has a purposeful mission. So I hope you will all be very, very successful in your work. That's how we achieve this. Our final words, Bill. There we go. There we go. Hey. We got really good at the microphone exchange today. Did you notice that? This is a quality crack team of uh, expert presenters up here. Um, so did you feel like you came away with a sense of collaboration, a sense of inspiration, a deeper understanding today? That's what we were driving at. And uh, I think in the conversation that Trista just had about diversifying our networks, finding places and spaces, we can come together and connect, share ideas, learn new things, be a part of the conversation. I mean, when we bring you together as a gathering, we bring expert presenters, that's a good program. When you all jump in with the discussion, it becomes a great program. And having you all together with us today to be able to share, to take this, this conversation to another level was, was super helpful. We hope you'll come to future Global Minnesota events. We're going to stay uh, in this effort, if you will, to continue to bring these kinds of programs and, and collaborations and connections together um, to share uh, the important issues um, that we should all be talking about during these times. 
One big round of applause again. I want to thank uh, Trista, Timothy, Ken, Laura, and Bjorgman for putting together a tremendous program for us today. It was just a great job. Um, so engaging and so interesting. Another big round of applause for Sunrise Banks, for David and the team here that did a great job. Um, huge thanks to the Global Minnesota team who came together with the folks at Sunrise to make this happen today, to Steve and to our Aaron and to our entire team, Katie, Olaf, others that are in the room. Thanks to all of them for their great work. Let's give them a big round of applause too. Um, we had some materials for you, upcoming programs and activities, and of course, um, that listing of all the different kinds of services available through the corporations that are part of our membership. Um, thanks to all of you again. You know, you make this conversation a great one, and we're so happy to have you all with us. We we'll see you at a future Global Minnesota event soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you all.